Actually, I would like you to stand for the whole service, if you don't mind. <laughs> well, it's a very high privilege to be invited to come and to speak here this morning and into the week. Uh, my parents both attended Houghton College in the, in the uh, middle part of the 1940s. And so um, many of the names of professors and of classmates are fairly deeply emblazoned upon my memory. Uh, they were spoken with great reverence, and uh, so I have a, a special place in my heart for the Houghton community. I think I must apologize, though, immediately for bringing this weather upon you. Um, I brought it from Kentucky, no doubt. We struggled with temperatures in the upper 90s for most of the week, and I thought I was coming to a place of great relief. And this is not working out well, and I'm worried about the next few days based on uh, where we're headed. But good to see you here. I'm glad to be here. It's good to make connection again with Wes. We had a delightful time last night eating at the Chinese restaurant. I, I can tell you the Chinese restaurant, and you know exactly which one I'm speaking of. <clears throat> I know you've got a great pastor, and I'll tell you why I know that. Uh, as we were eating there, I was absolutely dripping with sweat. I don't know what he was thinking of me, but sweat was dripping off my nose. I looked at my elbows, which were resting on the table as we sat, and there were little puddles of sweat <laughs> running down my forearms and hitting the table there. Um, I looked across at Wes, and there he was, and not a drop of sweat on his face at all. And I, I found myself concluding either he's an alien, um, completely inhuman, or else he, in fact, is a very cool customer and is able to take it under any kind of heat or pressure. And I think I'm choosing the latter on this one. But it's great to be here and, uh, and to have the privilege of speaking here. This parable that we have read this morning, it's an extremely short one. It's found only in the Gospel of Mark. It is so short it can pass us by. I think we can read it again and not be harmed too much by the rereading of it. It goes like this, and he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed upon the ground and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He knows not how. The earth produces of itself first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe... At once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Lord, we pray that you will speak to us in your own way, as you wish, through your word and through these words, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A simple story, isn't it? A sower, some seed, the ground, some growth after the passage of time, and a harvest. And if you've read several of Jesus' parables, you might say, this sounds pretty familiar, and they all sound about alike in, the, in this regard. Some years ago, my family and I were traveling through the mountains of western North Carolina, and we happened into one of those marvelous gift shops uh, where you can buy all kinds of crafts and, and uh, artworks, um, mountain sorts of things. There were gems of all sorts. It was quite magnificent. But what caught my eye was something that had been constructed in the corner of the salesroom there. It was a large thing. 
It was a pile of rocks. And they'd been piled up very meticulously and carefully up in a heap, upwards in the corner. It might have reached, oh, three to four feet in height. These rocks were very carefully placed and then lodged between them strategically were lush green plants. And then up at the top was an antique brass faucet. And out of that faucet came a stream of fresh, wonderful water. And down across those rocks, cascading the drops and the rivulets as they came down, the splashes were watering the plants. And uh, finally, after passing over this sill and that ledge of rock, all the water collected back down at the bottom in a basin. And I could hear the very faint hum of a little pump, a little water pump that was catching all this water and sending it back up to recirculate and down it would come again. It was one continuous loop. Quite a fascinating piece of work and beautiful. I found myself wondering who had made it. I wondered how much time it had taken to construct it. I thought of the cost it would involve to have someone do that in my home. I also thought of, oh, if they did that in my home, it probably would crash through the floor given the weight of this thing. And I thought twice about that. I pointed it out to my family. We enjoyed looking at it. And I suppose three or four times I might have cycled through the store and glanced at it. And then I must say that it must have been about on the fifth return past this wonderful display that suddenly my mind just seemed to lock up and freeze still. I was seeing something I suddenly couldn't comprehend at all. Something was wrong with this thing. Whoever the artist was, was playing with my mind, and I knew it. Because as I looked at this faucet that was over everything, there was no pipe leading into it. It was simply hovering in midair. There it was in midair, and water streaming out of it. And you know how you've had this experience where you suddenly see something you don't comprehend, and you so it seems like time doesn't pass. You're sort of stuck between parallel universes or something like that. And there I was frozen until I thought, no, wait a minute, there has to be an explanation. So I kind of moseyed up to it a little more closely and sure enough discovered what the trick was. They had sent the return water up from the pump up through a clear pipe that was right up in the center of the stream of water that was coming down. Perfectly concealed by the flow of water, a pretty neat trick, I must say. Pretty neat trick. Well, in reading this parable, I want to tell you that in passing by it four times, it seems perfectly understandable. You've got seed, right? You've got a sower. You've got some ground. You've got a harvest. End of story. What, could, what more could be said? Until, let us say, on the fifth passing, suddenly things seem very odd about this. Because we're told that simply a man began to scatter seed. He's not called a farmer, just a man. And then the next part that's so disturbing or uh, distracting is that we are not told that he does any kind of farming labor after he has sown the seed. There is no reference to his doing any weeding. There is no reference to his doing any kind of pruning. No reference to uh, attending to bugs or insects or predators or animals of any kind that would damage the plants No attention to that, no application of fertilizer, 
not even the appropriate and necessary amount of worry that any good gardener ought to have about those plants. And I speak with just a little experience right now because I'm worried about my plants. I've got a good fall garden coming on, and I hope to call my son this afternoon and remind him to water it tonight. So I just, mental note to self, all right. It takes work to be a farmer or a gardener. And in this parable, we have no attention to the work involved. Jesus, I would expect Jesus, of all people, to have a good Protestant work ethic. Where you work hard if you expect to get anything done. You have to slave over things to be sure to get your effect out of it. But not so. In fact, we are told what his behaviors are. We're told that he sleeps and that he gets up. How about that? And he does this over and over again. He sleeps and he gets up. Sleeps and gets up. Sleeps and gets up. Some farmer... Some farmer. Well, as if we didn't already get the point, Jesus has another line in, here, in this small parable in which he actually attributes to a completely different force the net effect of growing, of the seed growing. He says, the ground, all on its own, makes for the growth, not only the sprout, but then the mature plant, and then finally, the mature grain in the ear. In fact, this sower is responsible for causing not one stage of growth in this seed. Not one stage. How interesting this is. I might as well just get to the point of what I think Jesus is driving at here. Remember, this is a parable of the kingdom. It's how the kingdom of God works. It's how God does things. And... May I make this suggestion that on the front end of the process, in the sowing part, there is full human participation and labor. On the end of the process, on the harvesting part, there is full human participation and labor. But in the gap between, in this mysterious space between sowing and harvesting, there is mystery of life that is not under the knowledge or control Of the one who sows the seed at all. It's the gap. It's the mystery. It's where God does what only God can do. Only God makes things alive. The Apostle Paul, you might remember, had a few lines very similar to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You remember them. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? He answers his own question. We are servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. How interesting that both in a parable and in the teaching of the epistle, we have an essential agreement here, and that is, The growing of things and the making of things alive is the province only and absolutely of the living God, the one who has life in himself. Back when I was beginning my studies, oh, this, of course, 30 years ago by now, I began to be pretty overwhelmed by the amount of of information that I needed to somehow master. 
And I don't know if Wes had this experience at all, but I actually remember the doorway I walked out of uh, after a class had finished when I was a student. I remember the doorway. It's the back of the administration building over towards Estes Chapel. I walked out that doorway, and my, my whole being, my heart, my mind, my body just basically said, Oh, God, help. There is so much to learn, and I have, I have gotten about 2% if that far along the way, and it seems that every time I see more, there's more that's even out there. I remember particularly this came home to me when just... Um, with just the business of studying the background, just the historical and cultural backdrop of the Bible. When you think of all the nations around about Israel, Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and uh, the Phoenicians and Canaanites and the Hittites and all the way around, later on the, uh, the Greeks, the Romans, all these diverse religious forms, all these divergent points of view... It seemed so daunting, and it seemed that they all must be mastered if we were to understand uh, the Scripture op, uh, in an optimal way. I happened shortly after that across some very interesting literature that was actually brought to my attention by John Oswald in particular, but many others as well, that uh, did an analysis uh, through the Jewish scholar, biblical scholar, Hezekiah Kaufman, did an analysis of basically all the non-Israelite religious systems in the ancient world. And it turns out that despite all of their diversity and all of their uniquenesses, turns out that they all share the same fundamental outlook on how the world works. And it's an outlook that's technically called, technically labeled, paganism. Now, I don't want you to think I'm using that term pejoratively. We tend to do that. We tend to say, oh, that person's just a plain old pagan. And by that we mean something like maybe no religion, completely immoral, uh, wild, crazy, and far, as far from God as you can possibly get. Actually, paganism, as a technical definition descriptive of religion, is almost the opposite of that. Pagans are exceptionally religious people. They, they are convinced, among other things, they're convinced that they, through trial and error, through experimentation, can study cause and effect to such a minute degree that they can, and here's the point, they can eventually crack the code of any and every mystery of life. And therein lies the heart of paganism. The idea is that all of reality is woven together into a singularity. Continuity reigns. Everything is connected with everything else, hardwired together in one way or another. And the whole point of being religious is to learn the system of cause and effect that permeates all of reality, including what we might call divine power and mystery and life. Everything can be conquered by trial and error and observation over time. Pagans, careful and tireless experimenters, building up a body of practical knowledge and arts that appear to work and give them control over life. Now, at some risk, at some risk, I want to illustrate this just through voodoo. 
not illustrated up here. I don't mean that. Um, but illustrated conceptually through voodoo, I say at some risk, because for many of us, to mention voodoo makes you think of something, uh, let's say, uh, that, that folks who are illiterate, uh, hopelessly impoverished, uh, and uh, perhaps ignorant do. This is not, this is not the underlying uh, uh, characteristic of paganism. Paganism is sophisticated, it is complex, and it is compelling. In fact, it is so compelling that all of Israel's neighbors, as far as you would look east, west, north, and south, all of them participated in this fundamental theology. And in fact, can I say it this way? It is the fundamental default thinking mode of humanity, of you and me. This is how we think. This is what we guess. This is what we imagine. Let me study it long enough, and I will figure out how to decode the system and how to know how to push the button here and get that effect, pull the lever there and get that result, turn this crank in this way and have that outcome. That is the default way of thinking for us human beings, and it simply shows up and surfaces in a wide variety of religious systems around the ancient world and right on up to today. In voodoo, for example, a patient is brought to a practitioner. Let's say a child is very, very sick. Uh, The practitioner takes, let's say, a three-year-old rooster, not a two-year-old rooster, not a four-year-old rooster, a three-year-old rooster has been proven to work. Take it by the neck, swing that thing around seven times clockwise, not counterclockwise, that doesn't work. Clockwise is the way to do it. Seven times, not six, not eight, seven and then when the head comes off, take the body and, and drain the blood into a bowl. Take that bowl and sprinkle it out. Spray it out 20 times, not 21, not 19. Then take the blood and streak it across the victim's forehead. Not four times, but three. Do it horizontally, not vertically. That doesn't work. And you can see how over the generations of time, basically what has developed is, get this, a spiritual technology. A way to accomplish things in the spiritual realm. A way to control divine power in order to have the effects and the designs that we would like to have. The way of paganism. Results are guaranteed, we, they are, in, in pagan thought. If, they're not, if they don't come out, you didn't do it right. Go back and do it again. Hold your mouth differently this time as you come back through. Maybe you missed a syllable in the incantation part, you can repair that this time around and make it work. Now, you might recognize just a little bit of kind of a scientific method in here. This is not far from a scientific understanding of things where experiment over time, trying different approaches, observing outcomes, eventually will lead one to the conclusion one wants and to the cracking of mysteries. Science is great, isn't it? Science is great in things like airplanes and computers and surgery and so forth and so on. But when science becomes an ideology, that is when science claims and imagines that it can penetrate all mysteries, that it has comprehensive capacity to decode, that's when it slips from being an appropriate handmaid to becoming something that is actually pagan in its, in its fundamental understanding. Now, as you can imagine, this, this is a perennial temptation not just in our own spiritual lives individually, but for churches, isn't it? For all of us. 
We're all of us being tempted. It's part of, you might say, almost our DNA. We're being tempted to figure out how to get God to do things we want to get done. How to get spiritual work done. And all of us want to know how to make life happen in other people. I don't know if you're like me. But you want to make spiritual life happen in other people. In my students, I want to make certain things happen. There is this temptation to think I can get over into a heart and a mind and turn the wheel in the right way. Oh, you've been witnessing to a friend. That friend hasn't yet turned to Jesus. Let me have a crack at it. I have a better feel for how the code works. I think I can get that to happen. Or just another game of golf. And he'll be in the fold. And there you have another uh, manifestation of the kind of confidence we have that we can accomplish the things that we think we need to accomplish. And so what I think we're being called to in the face of all of this temptation that goes back across the ages to the very beginning and manifests itself in a wide variety of ways across the centuries, what I think we're being called to is actually a kind of holy and sacred declaration of ignorance. There's a, there's a gospel song that I would like to make mention of. Actually, it's a gospel song that has better theology than most. Gospel songs have often been criticized for being a bit shallow and being a bit sentimental. But this particular one, perhaps some of you remember it, actually is pretty much on target in lots of ways. Um, it, it goes in the chorus like this, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And so if you've sung this, and I have sung it many times through my life, but the chorus is a wonderful, rousing chorus. You want to sing it with all your might. But I know whom I have believed, focusing on I know. I'd like to point out that the first, that the stanzas, the five stanzas that go with this song all begin with the first, with the same three words. I know not. The song is more about what is not known, far more, if you would count the words, it's 80% of what we do not know. The first stanza, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he has made known. The last stanza, I know not when the Lord may come, which is a good one to remember. I know not that. But stanzas two and three interest me a great deal for our purposes today. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how, by believing in his word, God brought peace within my heart. And then stanza three. I know not how the spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. I don't know these things. I think the hymn ought to be renamed something like, I don't know. Instead, I know. And in fact, I, I've toyed a little bit with this with Wes. You know what uh, the saying is about special speakers like me. They're kind of dangerous people, you know. They come in, and as it said, they, they blow in, they blow up, and then they just blow out. And then poor pastors left to pick the pieces up and counsel people back into sanity after that event. But uh, here's a, a recommendation I'm, I'm tongue-in-cheek offering to the, uh, the Houghton Board of Elders, I think they're called. And that is to rename this church altogether. How many elders are here? I just want to know to whom I'm speaking exactly. Yes, okay, you, yes. All right, I'm speaking to you guys now. Here it is. 
I think this ought to be uh, Houghton First Wesleyan Church of Sacred Ignorance. I, I think it has a good ring to it. I, I think it would at least cause people to ask questions. Good questions. And I think what it might do is to set a completely different tone that actually might help us kind of lock in on kingdom think as Jesus reveals it in this parable. And what is kingdom think? If this is the parable of the kingdom, what is kingdom think? Kingdom think is we can be actively and creatively involved in sowing. And we need to know how to do that well. We can be actively and creatively involved in reaping. And we should learn how to do that well. But the gap between where life emerges and brings itself forth into fullness of fruit, that's God's to do. That's God's business and only God can make alive. And it's a mystery. And it's a mystery not to be, um, not to be ad- admitted and acknowledged with a tinge of embarrassment. It's a mystery to be celebrated and to be declared openly. We don't know how God does what God does, praise God. But God does it, thank God. We can sow, we can reap. Let God do the intervening uh, work. A friend of mine that, we, that uh, my wife and I met about, oh, 20 or so years ago, has become a very close family friend of ours. He and his wife, Betty. Uh, Steve has been a certified public accountant in a nearby town down in Kentucky. And uh, we have spent lots of time together. Early on in our relationship, I learned that Steve was an atheist. I began to be drawn to love him and to help him, if possible, into the kingdom. And so I arranged for us to go out on a hike out along the Kentucky Palisades, a very beautiful place in our area there. We were out on the hike, hiking for a while, and I began angling gently towards a gospel kind of topic. And he wheeled around and he stopped me. He saw me coming from about a mile and a half away. And he just looked at me and he said, Stop. I know where you're headed, and I don't want any of that. And then he said, And I don't want to hear one more word about it. Do you understand? Well, that was kind of clear, I think. (laughs) And so I I agreed. I, I said to myself and to him, all right, that's the deal. And I began to wonder, how will God ever get a hold of Steve? How will God ever get into him if he has ruled me, the greatest human being on the planet, out? And then about two years ago, we got a phone call. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Steve, excited, hard to understand. He called us on the phone. And he said, I was driving down the road, going back home from work. And as I was passing a church, a voice said very, very deeply within inside of me, 25 years of being an atheist is long enough. He said, I wheeled into the church and did the business I needed to do. I'm a Christian now. I'm a Christian now. And I borrowed a pressure washer from Steve the other day. He invited me into his house, took me into the lower level of his home, 
and showed me the whole corner of his room he'd converted into a prayer altar. And I'm thinking, well, maybe the Lord used me a little bit, but this is really an illustration that God makes things alive. Here's our first service in Christian life week. Life, there it is. Can I bring it? No. Can we generate it? No. Can we decide we're going to make it? No. But we can create space and we can give God the freedom to do what only God can do. And I'm asking that that could be our prayer as we close right now. I'd like us just to bow our heads and I'd like us to pray together. Uh, I want to pray and guide you here and simply ask this. Father, would you be delighted? I know you would. To breathe a fresh breath of life into us? Of course you want to. But friends, I'm asking if you would now, in your own heart of hearts, tell the Lord in your own way that you will pull back from trying to control the mystery of life. And you will give God the freedom to do what only he can do and certainly what he wants to do for you and for us and for our families, our children, our spouses, our neighbors, our friends. We thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. And we ask that you will show yourself in your own way and in your own time as the Lord of life who loves to bestow life in the gap, in the mystery, between and around our own work. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.